Hi! Have you missed us? Welcome to our bonus episode. We are wrapping up Bad Town with a series of questions from our listeners. And if this break from content has been painful, remember you can always follow us on Patreon where we are posting stuff for our paid subscribers. Of course, we have our cemetery tour with the Good Time Girls, the dreaded Cornwall or commercial this or that, and games with local business owners. In the lineup, we have Emma, the bar manager of Temple Bar, Dennis, the beverage director of Swim Club, Jason, the owner of Stemma Brewing, and more. Should we take a quick listen to some of our highlights from our interview with Jason? Yes. So in this episode, we played another Bellingham rendition of This or That. Cocktail from Galloway's or romance novel title? Let's have a listen. Uh, Lavender Blues, Galloway's, or cheesy romance novel? Uh, Cheesy romance novel? Wrong. Galloway's. Mine to keep. Galloway's. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a good start, guys. (laughs) I'm uh, over two. That was great. And we have more games like that coming, too. We wanted to also give our listeners some inside scoops on what's happening in STEMA's future and uh, what we can do to support STEMA right now. Let's listen to see what Jason has to say. What are some things that our listeners have to look forward coming from STEMA? Ooh, man, we're uh, we're actually sitting together tomorrow, um, kind of all, the whole team, and we're chatting over that. Um, and we're trying to be better about just a plan for the year. I feel like the last... Really, since March of last year, we've just been reacting. I mean, we we designed three different can packages and put them in the cans in like a week and a half, which I think I talked yeah. to you guys like right after that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> last time. And we remember that. That was impressive. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I feel like this whole last year almost has been reacting, and now we're wanting to plan more. Um, we're still heavy focused on cans, and we'll see more. Hoping to uh, have a little more... Um, reason with the cans, hoping for more seasonals, hoping for just more rotation, consistency. Yeah. Um, and then, as you know, open air dining is now a thing. So we're getting in compliance off for some uh, dining. It's sort of indoor, but with our roll up doors open. Um, and then, yeah, we're just going to keep doing what we like to do. So, what are what are some ways that our listeners can support Stemma right now? Just keep coming out, keep buying beer. Yeah, buying beer, buying to go. If you don't feel comfortable, you know, sitting down, uh, it you know it's great if you come right to the source and buy it. Um, yeah, we we miss people, so we love it. <laughs> miss people coming in. We miss talking with people. We miss. It's interesting. We've we've lost some regulars and we've gained kind of a whole new set of regulars. And yeah, we have regulars now that only buy to go, which is really cool. And so we have you know thirty second conversations every day with them or every other day. But um, awesome. yeah, I would say that and. Um, you know, gift cards. And then right now it's so much about just like word of mouth and branding and just, uh, if you like us, you know, uh, share the word. That was a great interview. We ended up chatting with Jason for another hour. Wish we could have recorded it. Yeah, me too. But that part is our goal with the money we get from Patreon. So other than making enough to eventually hire an editor with these funds that we're getting right now, we're going to get some new equipment so it's easier for us to record outside and so that the audio sounds better. That way we can make even more wonderful content for all of our fabulous listeners. And also maybe our hands won't freeze from holding the mic. Be sure to check us out at patreon.com slash city of subdued podcast for more content like this. And with that, we hope you enjoy our season two bonus episode. (laughs) 
All right, here we are. Only a month late to getting our bonus episode out. To be fair, January has been a very busy month for, especially for teachers. Yes, it's been hectic. A special (laughs) thank you to our listeners and a very special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren for all of their hard work this season. And thank you, Maria, for doing the editing on this episode. Duh. Before we dive in, we have two new patrons. A special thank you to Marissa and Melanie. We really, really appreciate your support. We also wanted to shout out some local treasures. There's been so much to be proud of the last several weeks. We're just going to name off a few things that we've had since we've last talked to you guys. Uh, I recently had the autumn sweater from Red Light, and there was also another cocktail at Red Light, and I can't remember the name of it, but it had like vanilla in it, and it was it it almost was like London fog, e like a vanilla lavender situation. Interesting. Yes, so good. Okay. And um, and then of course the nachos from Black Sheep, which I've had too many of <laughs> over the last month. Okay, so I'm just gonna name a few things I remember purchasing. Um, And we've been ordering in a lot because, like I said, I've been busy. Haven't had too much time to cook. Uh, Sandwiches from Comrade. That is Carnell's new sister, little sister store. Um, Fried chicken from Bantam. Sushi and ramen from Fujisan. The Golden Goose Canadian Lager from Aslan. The Italian Pilsner Pilsner from Structures. And the First Amber from Stemma. That's a lot, but they're all great recommendations. And we hope that you guys go out and support our local businesses. You know, stay outside, wear your masks. Uh, But with that, let's head on over to our bonus episode. We're excited about this. It was a really fun one. Awesome. We are here for our very special bonus Q&A episode. We have requested some questions from you, the listeners, to ask of our experts, and we're just going to dive in here. So we have a couple of questions from Sarah uh, that have to do with episode two. To recap, this episode was about the legend of the Chinese curse on the town of Belling. So Sarah asks, are there any other legends or curses that you know of? Any other legends at all? Like in the whole, like, like the legend of, of Spooky Hollow? <laughs> Local, I think, Bellingham legends. Oh, man, there's so many. It's actually an overwhelming question. Uh, Colby, do you want to start? I, I just, I mean, immediately go to my Fairhaven ta- tall tales and legends because there's a lot there, especially in my Gorin lore tours. We talk about a lot of those, like the Fairhaven Black Cats. I'm going to tell that one, tell that one, tell that one. <laughs> um, well, basically, there's a legend in Fairhaven. So when I was young, girl, there was actual feral cats running around in Fairhaven like that lived underneath a lot of the buildings at that time. I know it's hard to picture now. Fairhaven's all fancy. But at the time, it was all, a lot of buildings were empty and half abandoned and boarded up. So you had these feral cats running around living in these buildings and under them. And the restaurants that were there would put out food or saucers of milk or whatever for these cats. They were not friendly. They were super feral. And a lot of them were black. And the legend was that those were the descendants of this black cat ranch that had existed on Eliza Island. 
And so there's this whole story and legend of the guy who built Wardner's castle up on 15th and Knox. And um, that is supposed to be this really haunted house too, by the way. Um, But that he basically told a reporter when he bought Eliza Island during the 1890s railroad boom that he was going to start a black cat ranch farm there and raise them and sell their fur to make like kitten mittens that's the yuckiest and also like <laughs> i feel like i want to like like press you to get to the point where you're like this isn't true we like this is it's not true he was totally just effing with the guy who, the reporter who was like jim what's your plan for eliza island and he's like let me tell you I'm going to have a cat farm. and um, But it was syndicated and it went nationwide and people freaked out. and a lot. Actually, some people freaked out and some people were like, hey, I want to invest. This is a great idea. Ugh, ew. So, um, <laughs> but there's no historical evidence at all that that existed. No, yeah. On I, I kind of, this, is, this I like to file under that category of, hey, we're just up here eating apples and smoking our legal weed and messing with the rest of the country with the concepts of what they think about us. Yeah, and they actually, they did, the the feral cats of Fairhaven were all rounded up and spayed and neutered. And so they I think they actually tried to like home some of them. <laughs> they were pretty nasty cats. Um, but so they don't exist anymore as a population, clearly. But um the, the Black Cat restaurant and bar in Fairhaven started out as Le Chat Noir, but that was also a nod to this legend. So that's the Black Cat legend. That's, an, that's a really good legend. And Fairhaven's really good for legends. Um, the other legend that I think of all the time is of the Green Lady. Oh, yeah. And we talked about that on the, I think, our Halloween special yeah, a bit. Yeah. But I just think that that's an important one. If you're talking about local legends and curses, that's definitely mm-hmm. one. I've Oh God! Speaking of the ghosty stuff, I, yeah, there I saw a really dumb one recently on Angel Eyes at the cemetery that like equated it to some kind of a witch situation. Yeah, to remind everyone, Angel Eyes. I feel like you should go back. The Green Lady, in case you haven't listened before, which I don't know why you're listening to this one if you haven't listened to the other ones before, but maybe you haven't consumed all of them. The Green Lady is a ghost that supposedly haunts the building that the Black Cat is in. Um, in Fairhaven and she's she's called the green lady because she wears a green dress and angel eyes is the name of the statue that's an angel um, at the cemetery in the old part of Bayview Cemetery that um, we talked about in our bonus episode for Patreon listeners um, where people have in the past painted her eyes glow in the dark and done other weird things with her eyes so sorry to cut you off Colby but I just wanted to oh no 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 I was jumping in anyway it was just a yeah I just thought that was a really weird version of that legend because there's been a lot of legends about her like if you look at her eyes you know at midnight you're gonna die or her eyes will glow or they're gonna bleed or something along those lines but this was like this really elaborate like she was once a witch story and I'm like what like save that for Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, I know we have witches, but they're lucky, <laughs> unimpressive. Like they're just, they're just, they are in a coven. They do tarot. It's not a big deal. It's a more recent witch thing. Yeah. Here. <laughs> so Sarah had one more question. She asks, "Is there any evidence of the mines left?" She was thinking about the glass bits on the sidewalk on Holly Street in front of the barber shop. Yeah, I I think those glass bits were just to let light into basement levels that extended out under the sidewalk, which was common in a lot of cities. Um, and a lot of them are gone here in Bellingham, but they don't have anything to do with the mines. But there's really not any evidence much left of the mines at all. 
Um, and in fact, it took a long time for us to even figure out where a lot of the mine shafts were. So evidence would surface and that built people who were building or remodeling buildings would accidentally find old mine shafts. Yeah. <laughs> so that's happened a number of times. Yeah. But, I think um, we mentioned before in a previous podcast that um, that happened with the building of Fiamma Burger. They were held up for a long time because they were, you know, dug down a little bit to do some work in there to do some foundation um, restoration, I think, and uh, ended up finding a mine shaft and it, and it set them way back. So we would, I just always imagine it's kind of like Swiss cheese. If you don't, if you go not too far <laughs> underneath, especially railroad. Yeah. Railroad has been a hot spot for sure. And and the other thing, those, those glass, um, I like how she, they, she, Sarah references them as glass bits in the sidewalk, but they're, um, you have skylights um, with purple circular glass, and we actually don't have a good way of replacing those anymore. I think the only one that's visible that's left anymore is is on Holly Street, and it's just outside of the YMCA building. You'll see those there, and you can tell that when they break, they kind of fill it with this like gray epoxy now. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of sad, and uh, the city refers to that as structural sidewalk, um, <laughs> where there is where there's places where there is definitely like a a basement that's going underneath the sidewalk. One that I've been in a structural sidewalk is underneath Bayou on Bay's building, the, that sidewalk, that kind of fancy tile. One of the reasons for that, that, you know, the, the kind of um, the way that the sidewalk is above um, the structural sidewalk of, of Bayou on Bay is because it's a lighter, it's lighter than just pouring regular concrete. This is also true in front of JJ's. And the comics place that that kind of weird porous sidewalk, it's because there is some cool, big, creepy basement from these old buildings that goes underneath um, those sidewalks. And the one under Bayou is particularly terrifying. And uh, and there's staircases that don't go anywhere down there. And actually, when I was down there one time, there was painting on the wall um, and it and the bar that's within Bayou supposedly came from down there. I believe that it was a speakeasy, that it was a blind pig in the olden times. So it's there's some cool nefariousness that happened down there, but it's not necessarily related to the mines at all. Yeah, I just want to add that like we wish there was some kind of remnants because that would make for great tour stops, you know, when you can actually stop in front of something that exists and tell a cool story about it. It just makes it so much more, I don't know, relevant and real. There is really a lot that's gone. So next up, we have a question from Lance. He asks about episode three, which is Bad Bud Town, the episode about Bellingham's original bad boy, Bad Budcock. And he asks, why are the Fairhaven markers gone? Well, not all of the Fairhaven markers are gone. Do you mean? And so like when we talk about. They're referring to the ones that are missing from because in that episode, the marker that we're talking about was missing. Okay. Um, Well, some of them were like stolen <laughs> it's like and vandalized and then removed at different times um but yeah maybe colby you could speak more to that specific one yeah i mean so the fairhaven markers this is the, that episode talked about one of them and a couple of our episodes mentioned them as well there are these little historical plaques placed around fairhaven in the 80s and 90s um, and a lot of them commemorate sort of sensational events so that particular one amongst uh, among a couple of others are missing. So that one originally read Junction Saloon and was the, talking about the holdup with Bad Bud Cox. And 
Um, there was actually three markers in that same vicinity that mentioned saloons. And I think there was another one around there for Dirty Dan's Hotel. And all but one of those are missing, presumably stolen. And I think it was because they were placed in like dirt flower bed landscaping rather than embedded in the sidewalks like many of the others are. All you need to do is some prying and Jimmy Yang to get those out. Exactly. So uh, I think over time they learned that lesson after replacing a couple of them multiple times and losing a bunch of others that now they they tr- tend to embed them pretty well. And another like PSA about those is while they are super cool and um, came from uh, fun, interesting local historic characters, which we of course like our historian characters, which we of course are, are like and hope to be considered fun, local, weird historian characters someday. They're not super accurately placed and not super accurately researched. So you can't look at one of those and be like, this is definitely what happened and where it happened. It's much more of a, um, there's much more of a story behind a lot of those. And they, there used to be a brochure that you could like look at. And then some of them have the QR codes on them, I think too. And you could go and look and, and see what they were referring to um, and get more context. But yes, but this is why I'm doing, haha, doing, I'm doing an event. I'm, oh God, I don't have my dates on me, but coming up, I think in February and March, I'm doing uh, virtual tours about the markers in Fairhaven, and there's no way to cover all 50 in an hour on Zoom, but um, I am definitely taking requests for favorites and things like that. Yeah. Bellinghistorytours.com is where people can find more information about that, right? It's actually through Bellingham Parks Department, so in their new uh, playbook, which used to be called the Leisure Guide. Now it's the playbook, so check that. That's going to be charming and wonderful, I'm sure. (laughs) sounds really fun it is our next question is from an anonymous sender and they ask bud later in life was committed to san quinted and Folsom under a different name was this before fingerprinting it was and i'm excited that this question got asked so fingerprinting was discovered in 1892 um it's kind of it's got a really interesting history i think it'd be if it doesn't exist it'd be cool just to watch a documentary or read a book about this one um uh, this one discovery. So um, Juan Vucetich, um, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce the last name because he was an Argentine chief of police and he created this method. Um, and the first time it was used um, was a really disturbing story that I'm sure you guys want to hear uh, about, but it, it was when Francisca Rojas um, was found in a house with neck injuries and um, her uh, two sons were found dead with their throats cut. And it turned out that she, um, her fingerprints were her were kind of in dirt on um, her own throat. And it turned out she had killed her own sons and was trying to get away with it. She was trying to make it look like they had been killed and that um, her, her children had been killed and that she had, that someone had attempted to strangle her and then, and got away. So it's a really fascinating story. And he's able to prove um, that she was the person who, who did this. She did this because she had a boyfriend who didn't, who wanted to date her, but didn't want to be a stepfather. But really United, the United States didn't start using fingerprints to identify individuals for another decade. Cause you know, these things don't, we, we often think of like when something got discovered, like when penicillin was discovered, like, 
it took a very long time for penicillin <laughs> to become something that was mass produced and available and um, and used worldwide. Um, and the same is true for fingerprints. And actually, I think it's amazing that it was only 10 years um, until they started to become widely used, which is interesting because Bad Bug Cox's story, a lot of it is, is it's, it's from around the same time from 1902, but it doesn't, we were, as we discussed sort of earlier, referred to it earlier, we're kind of a backwater up here in Washington state. And it took us a while um, to adopt that. So I'm not exactly sure when um, Washington state started using um, specifically fingerprints. I think it just like took a long time to really like a mass, you yeah. know, a collection of them, even up and down the coast or across the nation. So right. even after like people started adopting it, it took a took a while for it to really like work pretty well. And I know this is like go, kind of goes without saying, but it's always I think it's always important to take a moment back to like step back to the pre information age era and remember that yes. Bellingham could have taken fingerprints or Walla Walla could have taken fingerprints, but that didn't necessarily, but like if you wanted to check someone's fingerprints against a different file, that meant like writing a letter to the other municipality or the, the, the prison system and saying, I got this guy, blah, 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 blah. It, you know, it's like, if you happen to have the fingerprints for bad bud Cox um, uh, and and had that to compare to like that becomes a long time it becomes a long time before um oh this is a this is like a smoking gun these two things that are right next to each other you couldn't necessarily do that this also would be interesting if we were talking about spider biles who had a twin brother that we know that twin brothers had different um that twins have different fingerprints so this you know the issue with spider biles was people they were constantly pointing at each other and saying i didn't do that my brother did and getting off on charges um but we, you know, nowadays that wouldn't be possible because we, even though DNA evidence is, um, would make their, would make it a problem. Um, we know that fingerprints are actually different between identical twins, which is so strange and fun and cool and weird. So that was episode four with Spider Biles. If you missed it, we did talk a bit about this whole thing in that episode because it was relevant with the twins thing. We have a few questions from episode five. This episode is Bad Trial Town, a.k.a. For the Love of Moses. Uh, and this is about the crazy love triangle, murder trial, and acquittal of Mr. Long. So our first question about this episode comes from Izzy. And she asks, what are the pros and cons about being an old maid in the late 1800s? First of all, Marissa, please answer that. <laughs> Izzy, what an amazing person Izzy is for asking this question. Because... I love this. So um, it's complicated. You know, it's it was a complicated time to be a woman. And also like, Izzy, can we just as an aside, Izzy, old maid is kind of an old term. Like we're talking about a person like a confirmed bachelorette, a person who's chosen <laughs> not to be married. She's not necessarily not been chosen. Maybe she's made a made a choice out of agency to not be married. You know, and I think you could write a long pros and cons list about this. But one of the things is like, you know, women have for, you know, for centuries um, been treated more like property once they become married. And if you wanted to have a semblance of um, control, this is something, these are choices that people, people are still making about whether or not to be partnered or to get married. You want to have a semblance of control over your finances, um, your day-to-day uh, -day decisions where you're going to live. Um, there were a lot of rules about, you know, up until um, 
in my mother's lifetime in many states, it wasn't illegal to rape a woman that you were married to or beat a woman that you were married to in many states. And so, you know, your ability to have the have just say over whether or not you were going to stay in an abusive situation, it, it was very limited. Um, obviously, some of the cons are that women then as now made a lot less money than men. Um, and that while you might have had more choice, there was a lot of li- limitations about whether you could own property or have credit in your name if you needed to someone to co-sign on pur- a man to co-sign on purchasing a house. Um, the thing that a lot of people didn't realize until Ruth Bader Ginsburg died is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was really um, brought before the Supreme Court a, a case to make it possible for women to be able to have credit or or purchase a home without getting a, a, a man's uh, a cosign on it. And so there were, I mean, this is the type of thing that this is a, a huge unpacking that would need to happen. It's a long yeah. list. There were lots of I just, I, I feel like, I just want to jump in and say that historically, especially, it was definitely easier for women of means who had some kind of, say, inheritance or wealthy family and or education, which often went hand in hand, to live without marrying for their entire lives and live a decent life. But if you were working class and uneducated and didn't have those things to fall back on, you had a lot less choices let's just put it that way i just want to give a shout out though to the spinsters out there in the history of the world because you know moneyed and educated in particular you know give they had that privilege but those ladies got a lot of stuff done um because of that privilege and that money and that education that they received and not having children and a husband they got a lot of shit done historically. Right. So yeah, absolutely. And I would say that's probably true in communities, even when there isn't a lot of money, right? So like the the women who are volunteering at the church and getting things done in a small community often are the women who are unburdened by yes. children and yes. husbands to take care of. Yes. Absolutely. Shout out to the, the single ladies. All the single ladies. Okay, so this is another question from an anonymous asker. They want to know if there were any more fun Bellingham trials that were a media circus. Okay, where do you even start? Yeah, people were <laughs> bored. There, you know, there was not radio even in those early days. Uh, really, the only publications most people ever saw were in local newspapers. So that was like the exciting things to read about, stories about trials. If you could attend a trial, heck yeah, why not? Go and watch that stuff go down. So a lot of them, I mean, a lot of them, (laughs) I'm sure, were total media circus. And, you know, just the one that always pops into my mind is the the pre-leg bootlegging case that we talk about in, I forget what episode number that is. That was my great-great-grandpa. And, um, you know, they talked about how, you know, the the courtroom was like standing room only, people in the hallways. That was just a bootlegging case. So they were all a circus. <laughs> um, okay. Our next questions have to do with episode six. This episode is our Bad Lady Town episode where we told stories of lady criminals, a.k.a. the baddest bitches of Bad Town. 
Um, Sylvia and Izzy want to know um, if there are any female murderers from Bellingham who murdered with their own hands. <laughs> right. So that's referring to the case in one of those episodes, uh, episode six, I guess, in which um, it was a Patton murder in which the woman commanded her son to shoot her neighbor, Michael Patton. Um, and I can't really speak to much like from the sixties onward, but, uh, the, basically all the murderers that I can think of that come to mind are women who killed their abusive husbands, <laughs> um, which goes all the way back to say indigenous woman, Zuilas Sehom Fitzhugh, who shot her asshole third husband, who was a Welsh guy. So um, she was actually, Fitzhugh was the Indian agent. We talked about this, I think, maybe in the Sehom mine episode. I'm not sure. But he married um, Chief Sehom's daughter, Julia. And uh, Zuilas was her aunt, who actually came to help her when she was pregnant by Fitzhugh. Um, she was having a hard pregnancy and then Fitzhugh knocked her aunt up as well and ditched them both and went off to fight for the South during the Civil War. What a guy. Um, but she married a couple more times after that. And her third husband was a total a-hole as well. Um, and everybody knew about it. So when she shot him, she got a pretty lenient sentence for the time. And um, that's a pretty terrible story. Um, there's another sort of similar one in Mount Vernon. I think Todd Warger writes about a case in um, one of his books. It's in Skagit County of uh, Jenny Gorsuch, who shot her abusive husband. She was also sentenced to Walla Walla, was given a sympathetic sort of lenient sentence there so depressing yeah. i mean yes I, I would say that the this um see home fits you murder makes me feel like someone needs to write a murder ballad about her like an old-fashioned uh good old-fashioned murder ballad where you're kind of like is this song celebrating her or warning us about the whole situation or both right? or everything <laughs> yes it is it's like yeah i mean I feel like I hear um, the bang bang song or something in the background when you were describing that. And I had, I had a hard time, I mean, finding any historical statistics, but, and I think that just bears out in the fact that there weren't jails or accommodations in jails for women because they were not getting arrested as often for one reason or another. And to your point too, there's, you know, when you have a cultural, when you have a society or a culture that's like, like, to Izzy's earlier question about what are the pros and cons of being a woman who's married and not married or let's to be an old maid it's like well you're less likely to be murdered I mean I think we think of we often think that women had more have more protection by having a man in the home but you're actually much more likely to be murdered by the man in your home than you are anybody else well surprise surprise our next question is about female bootleggers <laughs> do we have any <laughs> I'm just going to say, well, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, it depends on what you mean by bootlegger, because that term, I think it's thrown around in different ways. And today is 
probably has a lot more general meaning and perhaps a slightly different meaning than it did originally. But like there probably weren't actually people walking around with bottles in their boots, so to say. I mean, maybe occasionally, but anyway, um, bootlegging in terms of like there were lots of women arrested and incarcerated for violations of liquor laws. I mean, huge. That was why we ended up with needing a women's jail that and outlawing the brothels was, I mean, this, it just like tripled the need. Yeah. Um, so everyone just, everyone just was being hospitable. They were just offering yeah. alcohol. And, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, and- the brothels had always served booze and they were run by women historically so they kept on doing that and yeah so a lot of the times all through the 20s brothel busts were often actually liquor busts um so you'd see it written up in the paper where it was like you know they raided this brothel but they arrested them on liquor charges so it's it's interesting um i think women tended to be more in like the you know, um, in the selling role rather than on the smuggling or producing end of the, the, you right. know. Well, that all just sounds too complicated operating a still or driving a car, you know, it's hard <laughs> for us ladies to make things like that happen. Yeah. And I mean, I, that was probably just because of the, the way the gender roles were already falling out, but that's just where, what you see the arrests for. Um, Okay. We have another question from Sylvia who asks, um, doesn't it seem unfair that the lady sneaking the saws into the male prisoners got a much larger amount of time, so I'm guessing a much longer sentence, than any of the male prisoners she was trying to aid? Well, yeah, but, like, that's how it is, sister. Like, we're always going to be... Well, this is just who I was thinking of, right? When I was talking about smuggling and skirts, this immediately came into my mind because she literally smuggled in like 12 saws or some crazy thing in her skirts and stuff. But yeah, like why the heck? I mean, you know, I guess they were just drug dealers and, you know, I don't honestly think that they should have been in jail in the first place, but um yeah i mean if she was trying to break out murderers or something you know i feel like the whatever prisoner she was abetting like that's their sentence or whatever their crime they were accused of should reflect on her but obviously didn't i mean it's obviously more about her gender than anything else which i think sylvia's being really smart to to tap into it's like it has a lot more to do with punishing her as a woman for doing something wrong and trying to set an example for other women about, and I think some of it came, comes along. It was like, Oh, we didn't even consider that this was something that a woman would do. And now we need to really punish her so that all the other women don't get uppity and put skirts, put stuff uppity their skirt, you know, like we have to really, <laughs> we have to really, you know, think about and, and be, and this is a, this is really constant in, in our history. We have, you have countless examples of women being treated in a completely different way than men are treated for doing the same thing and being treated um, and, and there being this um, extra level of how dare you um, we kind of rot on a woman as well. Okay. So this is, I think our last question from Sylvia. Thank you so much, Sylvia, for sending in so many thoughtful questions. Uh, she wants to know what happened to the brothel lady's rival. Yes. 
Okay, so in this episode is we talked about um, uh, Madame Myrtle Baker and her rival who get into a little scrap, and her rival's name was Eva Holman. And honestly, I don't know. Eva Holman's name appeared in local directories for a couple more years until around 1913, and then she moved on to greener pastures um, and wherever she went, she likely used a different name because it's a old brick wall in the searchable records with the info that we have on her. Um, Maybe she got married. It could, could be, but you know, I often find marriage records. Right. I mean, but she likely Eva Holman may not have been her real name. The ages she gave it may not be your real age where she was born. It's probably not the yeah. real thing. So it's really hard to research these people. And actually, the reason why we had so much on Myrtle Baker was because she was a property owner. So um, and she died and she left it to her sister and it left this whole paper trail. And Myrtle Baker was married. And I wonder if her husband had to co-sign on all of her mortgages. You know, that's a good question. Because like sometimes I'm like, why do these ladies stay with these dum-dums that they're with? I mean, there's I say that modern in modern times for lots of reasons but you know like, but yeah, yeah no that's a really good point actually because yeah I, I know the same thing she's clearly super not cool with him a lot yeah. but i mean if you need someone to sign your uh important financial paperwork it's good to have a dumb dumb around yep um okay this is this question is from the maple falls murder farm episode and it's from an anonymous sender and they ask does anyone know where the murder farm is in Maple Falls? So I'm going to say yes. That's Todd Warger, <laughs> who is the author of the series of Murder in the Fourth Corner books, which you guys should all go and check out if this is your jam. Um, available at Village Books and all local booksellers. And I think he has a website online and we link to it on our website. Um, but in, uh, the first, I think it's, yeah, the first, uh, volume, I'm going to, oh, pages 122 and 123 of Murder in the Fourth, he talks about, uh, he visited the farm and I think, um, you know, he got shown around by neighbors and there's not really much left there. Like the original buildings are all gone and things like that, but he was able to trace it through property records. Um, so there, I'm not going to like shout out where it's at. Right. If you want to find out really bad, yeah. you could. Buy a, buy a local author's incredible book. And if you're listening to this, you should be buying local author's historical accounts <laughs> that are available at Village Books from a small local vendor and finding out more about history. Um, because, yeah, there's, there's these documents. These, this kind of research is available to you, the listener, for sure. Okay. Uh, this this question is from Greg, and he asks, in your opinion, who is the most crazy local killer from any time period? I just say whoever killed dames. <laughs> <The butcher. laughs> I don't think there's anything crazier than that. But do you, Marissa? I still think that Romandorf is the craziest, is the craziest killer. I still am not totally i like that colby and i have a robust debate about this so i'm not totally convinced that he <laughs> killed dames i'm not convinced that he did but i'm not convinced that he didn't it seems very up his alley to have killed dames and i think that there's some evidence that makes sense that he did but i think 
Romandorf slash Jans slash Logan and all of his just like killing people just to get their deeds and their land and and proposing marriage to women and then shooting him them in the back and burning their bodies and it's just yeah he was pretty nutty and all that crazy stuff he did while he was in jail at the end trying to make himself look crazy but succeeded (laughs) we have a question from maggie may and this got to us from instagram thanks maggie uh do you know any forensic remains from the boiler body wondering if the advances in genetic forensics uh like the golden state killer could help id that person i know it's a long shot just curious if that's an option first of all i just want to say how much i obviously want to be friends with this person (laughs) (laughs) yes sadly that answer is a no yeah sorry um, yeah, they they opened and closed. They opened the case a second time, and then when they closed it in two thousand four, all the remains were cremated and interred in an undisclosed location, which means uh, whichever cemetery was dealing with indigent remains at the time, somewhere in Whatcom County, in a mass grave. Right. So we don't, but we don't know if there's any kind of DNA sample or anything that's Save. on file. Yeah, maybe they saved some teeth or something. Who knows? But yeah. it sounds like there's not, from what we know. So the last kind of handful of questions aren't um, pertaining to any specific episodes. Um, but we want to answer a few of these anyway. Uh, the first question is from Laura. And she says, what's up with those plates outside of the old homes in Columbia, like the like with the last name in the year? Yeah. <laughs> so those were a neighborhood project that was spearheaded by the Eldridge Historical Society, which I think they're still going. They, they help fund concerts in the park, but I don't think they have a website currently. I, I couldn't find it. Um, but they started back in 1978 and were involved with getting the neighborhood on the National Register. They did all these home tours and fundraisers. And as far as I know, they just had someone who would make these plaques for people. You just had to come to them and say, here's the research I did. And here's the name of the person who I think, you know, built this house. And so they're really only as reliable as that research and I will just say that there's a number I believe are erroneous um but you know it can be really easy to get confused doing research on property and back then it was even harder to do it was all you know analog there's no digital keyword searching um you had to really dig through a lot of um you know paper records in the archives and you know, there's differences between landowners, house builders, occupants of the property. These can all be very different things. You have to cross-reference a lot of stuff. Anyway, that's a long story short. Yeah. So if you wanted to now, today, wanted to find out who, if you had lived, no, you live in a historic home, Col- Colby, what's your best bet for finding who is most likely the person who built or, you know, initiated your home? Okay. Well, um, for for a, just a, a normal person that doesn't have access to the resources I do, I would say go to 
go see Jeff Jewell at the Museum Photo Archives because he's pretty amazing at telling you what to do. And they have resources there like city directories. Um, and that will give you a good start of seeing who lived at your address. Um, you can go into deed records to find out who the property owners were. There are, I mean, so a lot of that would be up at the state archives, um, which is the same building as the Center for Pacific Northwest Studies. And there are archivists there. Yeah, it's all at Western um, who can help you. But unfortunately, right now, it's uh, not easy to do because it's hard to get in there. But um, yeah, it, it's a matter of cross-referencing a lot of different things for me. Um and like what I what I have access to that a lot of people don't is things like, you know, Ancestry.com and uh, Newspapers.com and different sites that have, you know, I pay a subscription to be able to search and find other things that then confirm what you're looking at. Um, like newspaper references saying so-and-so got a permit to build their house at this address and, yeah, you know, things like that. So I did this research for our house in the Columbia neighborhood because this, um, the society doesn't, the Eldridge Historical Society doesn't do this program anymore. And so um, I did the research by going to the city archives and looking in the old Polk directories and just going back until um, there just wasn't anybody to go back till. And I believe that Jeff Jewell patron saint of all things that are holy and great in history in Bellingham, Washington helped me um, figure out from the assessor's website and do some cross-referencing. And we found out that the person who um, built our home's name was John Cody. I went around and took pictures of some of the signs and I painted a version of the sign for our house, um, which I still think the sea looks a little bit crooked, but, um, but that's what I did. And so nothing is stopping you owners of homes in our in Bellingham from putting up your own sign and doing this research and um if you reach out to us we can help you yeah I actually just got a request to help a business who um they actually purchased an old uh, 1890 95 in their um house in the lettered streets that has been used as a business and Sadly, um, they're going to have to take it out, but they want to retain the history and they're thinking about putting like a QR code on the building where you can walk by and learn about the history. So we're working on it. Um, our next question is from Ursula. Um, she asks, is there any haunted history regarding my house or neighborhood? Um, I guess Colby knows where Ursula lives, so. <laughs> this is my friend, and I do know where she lives. She lives in the Fountain District near Columbia, and I used to just legit live like three doors down from that house, so I'm not going to go into detail, but Ursula, I can tell you a Norwegian family lived in your house for many years and generations, so if you are experiencing ghostly activities, you might try talking to them in Norwegian. The the oldest generations may not have spoken a lot of English, um, and they are the most likely ones who died there, I'm just saying. Um, also, the house uh, nearby, you live by the Spiritualist Temple. There's there's lots of possibilities going on there, but um, we can talk more in person. So for the next handful of questions, um, because we are running a bit long, I'm going to do like rapid round. 
So just a, just a couple of words and answer. Who was the baddest madame in Bellingham? Badass, bad-tempered, or badly behaved? Myrtle Baker, 100%. She was badass. I- I'm also going to say Joyce Stokes, who lost her fingers at the cannery and left a six-figure bequest to Western Washington University. <laughs> All right. Uh, what is the baddest thing you've ever had happen on a tour? I was interrupted repeatedly by dudes telling me and correcting me on stuff that there was no way that they could in any way have any more information on than I did. Yeah, I'm, I I personally, I didn't want to answer this one because the holiday tours get pretty rocky. Oh, yeah, they do. I'm just going to look at that. So you could be Colby's worst memory you know, next holiday season. Make your reservation. <laughs> as long as covid's done maybe this one is from mary and she asks what is your favorite tour to do i haven't given a tour in a really long time which is sad but my favorite tour has always been the downtown sinogen tour i love that one with you Mine is the Fairhaven Gore and Lore, sort of my perfect tour since I grew up hanging out in Fairhaven as a goth teen. All right. Uh, next one is from Abby. Do you research? Do you do research of local families upon request? Yes, I do. Go to Belling History. It's like Bellingham, but instead of ham, it's history. Bellinghistory.com. And there will be a section there on research for hire. Awesome. And I do not do that because, like, if you haven't figured out yet, Colby is the research goddess and I am the talking <laughs> maven. Yes. I love it. Comedic relief. <laughs> uh, our last question is from Sam and they ask, where does the name Bellingham come from? Um, and Fairhaven, where does Fairhaven come from as well? Sure. Bellingham. Sir William Bellingham or Bellingham. Bellingham. I can't I can't do a British accent. I'm sorry. Too American. But um, he was the buddy of Captain George Vancouver, um, who was sailing around naming things. Um, So basically, a lot of the place names in the Pacific Northwest, especially in the islands and up north of us, and were either named by him or Spanish explorers. So you like San Juan Islands. And some of them stuck in one way or another. So um, Bellingham uh, never, Sir William Bellingham never saw uh, the Pacific Ocean, much less <laughs> Bellingham Bay or this town. Uh, but he got something named for him by his, his white guy friend. And Bellingham... Uh, the town is close to London. It's in the southern part of, of England. But there's also another town that's, st- that's spelled the same way um, in the north of England that I have um, driven past because it's super teensy-weensy. And it's actually pronounced Bellingham, which is fascinating to me. So when I um, – my husband is from England and his dad always – and his family always referred to Bellingham as Bellingham. Um, except for his dad would refer to it as Bellingham because he was from the north of England and there was a town there called that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And then Fairhaven. I actually went to Fairhaven, Massachusetts this summer when I um, went on uh, a 
a, a vacation, which was ill-advised and I can't believe that I did it. Um, but I went on a vacation to Massachusetts and, um, where my family has a tiny cottage. And, um, I finally went to Fairhaven, Massachusetts, which is what, uh, Dirty Dan named Fairhaven after. Fairhaven, um, is a, a nautical term that refers to, to a safe harbor, safe harbor. Um, and some people, um, according to, to Colby's research, said uh, that he claimed that it came from a Lummy name and I'm going to make Colby pronounce Cici it. Cece Leachum. Cece Leachum, which is supposed to mean port or fair haven as well. So I think those are all the questions that we have. Thank you so much for everyone who turned in questions, friends on the internet, friends in person, and anonymous spirits who willed the questions into existence. Um, we had a super duper fun time recording this episode and all of our episodes. Uh, Ren, Marissa, Annika, Colby, and I, thank you so much for following on us on this journey. Um, the bonus episodes, the numbered episodes, um, it's just been so fun to do this. Yay, thank you. Thanks for having it has us. Been fun. We're not exactly sure where um where the podcast is heading next um but our relationship with the good time girls and the downtown partnership is sure to be going strong long into the future let us know if you have any ideas for future collaborations or any other stories you'd like us to cover um annika and i will be back in a couple months with new content and we'll be posting sporadic content on our patreon for our listeners um, Colby and Marissa, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this bonus episode and for doing all the wonderful, excellent research and riffing needed to put together um, this really fun hour of content. Yes. You're welcome. Thank you. And you guys are, you, Annika and Maria, you are both um, honorary good time girls for life. That's right. For life. That's amazing. G-G-F-L. <laughs> yeah, there's only about <laughs> 10 of us, so you're welcome. <laughs> We're, it's, it's a slow growing gang. We're going to take over the world one day. Yeah, Someday, you. you know, in a hundred years, somebody will ask, who are the baddest gang of women <laughs> in, in Whatcom County history? <laughs> and it'll be us. It'll be the good time girls. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Yep. All right. With lots of love, I'm going to say one last good night to my beautiful friends, the good time girls, and we'll see you all soon. Thank <laughs> you.